and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that has no straights amongst us. Today we have Zoe, Julia, Laura, and Kellen. And this week, in honor of the start of Pride Month, I guess it's now the second week of Pride Month, but that's okay. No one's Pride counting. Is all year round for our <laughs> podcast, but like we're, we're so gonna true. get into it. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna be talking about the history of queer organizing. Kellen is waving a <laughs> a rainbow flag. <laughs> they got a TikTok Pride flag. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Uh, yeah, Kellen is TikTok's, or I guess was TikTok's finest uh, queer influencer. So true. Of course. I had my moment in the sun. <laughs> I'm only saying was because Kellen's no longer using TikTok. I still think Kellen is the most powerful influencer. Absolutely. Oh, right. So yes. Right next That's to Brad Man Rock. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're talking about queer organizing primarily through U.S. history um, obviously, it's a very big topic, so we will not be covering an extensive history, just probably some favorite moments, maybe some least favorite moments. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> you can also uh, check out our episode from last year called The Queer International, which was uh, more of a history on global queer movements. So, yeah. And to start, I wanted to read an excerpt from The Queer Nation Manifesto. Um, so this came out in 1990 and was written by uh, some of the members of ACT UP, which we'll talk about more later. And this section is called An Army of Lovers Cannot Lose. Being queer is not about a right to privacy. It is about the freedom to be public, to just be who we are. It means every day fighting oppression, homophobia, racism, misogyny, the bigotry of religious hypocrites, and our own self-hatred. We have been carefully taught to hate ourselves. And now, of course, it means fighting a virus as well and all those homo haters who are using AIDS to wipe us off the face of the earth. Being queer means leading a different sort of life. It's not about the mainstream, profit margins, patriotism, patriarchy, or being assimilated. It's not about executive directors, privilege, and elitism. It's about being on the margins, defining ourselves. It's about gender fuck and secrets, what's beneath the belt and deep inside the heart. It's about the night. Every one of us is a world of infinite possibility. We are an army because we have to be. We are an army because we're so powerful. We have so much to fight for. We are the most precious of endangered species. And we are an army of lovers because it is we who know what love is. Desire and lust too, we invented them. We come out of the closet, face the rejection of society, face firing squads just to love each other. We must fight for ourselves. No one else is going to do it. And if in that process, we bring greater freedom to the world at large, then great. Let's make every space a lesbian and gay space, every street a part of our sexual geography, a city of yearning and then total satisfaction, a city and a country where we can be safe and free and more. So powerful. (laughs) Extremely. I love that. Yeah, that was really, really beautiful. Um, So we wanted to start off with some history and um, we kind of broke it up into to pre and post Stonewall. Um, And so some of the things that happened leading up to Stonewall. So obviously queer people have existed for all of time, but in a society that punishes those who do not conform to the norm, that was often a secret. 
So we see this come up in themes in Jane Austen's and Juna Barnes' books, um, as we've talked about on our Queer Lit episode, and other accounts of folks who definitely weren't straight before there was a time or a language to really talk about that. Um, so I wanted to start by saying that it's important to note that the first case of HIV happened in Kinshasa, Congo in the 1920s, and this was learned by retroactively testing specimens and blood from patients there during this time. And this is important to our understanding of the AIDS crisis, which we're going to get more into in a moment. In April of 1952, the American Psychiatric Association, or APA, listed homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance in its first DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's like the thing of how people can diagnose you, basically, the, the big book that you can grant people an ability to diagnose. I had to read all of it for school this year, and it's it's a bad book. I'll say it. Not it wasn't fun at all. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> can't recommend. Uh, Would not recommend. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, just to be clear, the APA are also the folks who totally trained military elite on torture techniques, which is pretty much the reason for all of the uh, absolute fuckery that went on in the School of the Americas in lots of Latin American countries. Uh, disarray that happened after that. The APA is canonically bad, but it's worth noting that they definitely did damage in giving validity to the quote-unquote scientific bigotry against queer folks. In April of 1953, Eisenhower wrote into law that gay people could not work for the federal government or any of its subsidiaries. We still have issues in the workplace and in schools for queer folks. Um, it's just a quick reminder that in 2021 so far, we've had more anti-trans bills written than all of our history combined up to this point. I thought that Biden was going to save us. <laughs> oh, I don't get it. You know, it's a common misconception, but everyone should just listen <laughs> to our Biden episode and then they'll learn more. About it. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Um. In 1956, psychologist Evelyn Hooker determined in her research that there is no clinical difference between gays and straights. Thank you, a woman, of course, um, which was the first public record of this happening. On January 1st, 1962, Illinois repealed its sodomy laws, becoming the first state in the United States to decriminalize homosexuality. So just to reiterate... Um, that being gay was punishable by law in every state other than Illinois in 1962. Um, there were a few small organizing moments leading up to Stonewall, but of course Stonewall really kicked off the greater movement for queer, queer rights. Yeah, um, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the other moments that led up to Stonewall. Um, I think like we've talked on the show before about kind of like the way the civil rights movement is often framed as like Rosa Parks just like got tired one day and decided not to move on the bus and like there was no planning into it. Um, and similarly, I think the queer liberation movement is often framed as like this one single moment, the Stonewall riots that kicked off like all gay and trans rights movements. Um, but there were a lot of other moments and organizing campaigns before Stonewall that helped kind of 
set the scene for why it was able to become such a turning point for the queer community. Um, so the first thing that I want to talk about is the Cooper Donuts riot, which happened in Los Angeles in 1959, which was 10 years before Stonewall. Um, it's often considered to be the first explicitly queer uprising, meaning that it was like the first time people were rebelling specifically on the basis of queer identity. Um, I think it's kind of hard to determine like the first one of these, but it was a very early moment of trans and queer people in the US kind of being like, we're not hiding in the closet anymore. We're not gonna put up with mistreatment just because of who we are. Um, and some context that I think is somewhat important here for anyone who has not lived in LA, donut shops are everywhere. And they're kind of like popular hangout spots for like young working class people. A lot of times like people who are marginalized in some way or don't have other spaces to hang out. They're kind of like a lot of bodegas in New York or what I assume Wawa is in Philadelphia. Don't really know. But Love basically, the shout like, out though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like it's basically just a place that's like, it's open 24 hours. You can like get a coffee and hang out in like a semi-private space that's like, you're not just on the street, kind of like immediately vulnerable to police harassment and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, Cooper Donuts was a popular meeting place for trans women and gender non-conforming people because they often weren't welcome at bars or other places that people would hang out because it was literally illegal at the time to wear clothing that didn't match the gender on your ID. Um, there was a crime called female impersonation that people would get arrested for, which could be like, you were wearing lipstick and they thought that you were a man or your ID said that you were a man. Um, yeah. So can I jump in here just really yeah, quick, yeah. Julia? Um, just to add to that, um, uh, the book, which is like a classic Stone Butch Blues, um, actually goes into this. And this would be like, if you want to understand like, pre-Stonewall like environment for especially for lesbian women um police would target people anywhere on the gender spectrum using these laws um so it would also be an excuse to like totally dehumanize people in police custody so frequently to quote-unquote check your gender police would force um anyone who they felt didn't conform to gender stereotypes, um, whether because they were gay or trans or, or what have you, um, to strip down, they would be molested, they would be physically abused in police custody. Um, and so these laws, in addition to being really important for policing gender expression, were also a way to give a green light to physical and sexual violence that police committed on um, people who were not cis and straight basically yeah definitely and it would happen in public as well like I, one of the things that happened at this riot that made people very upset is that cops were just like shoving their hands down people's pants to like quote-unquote check their gender um yeah it's it's bad um so basically because this place cooper donuts was welcoming to trans and queer people it was a big target of police raids. And one night in May, the cops showed up and started arresting people, um, you know, harassing people, um, assaulting people. And some of the people that they arrested included two trans women and two men who were sex workers. Um, so it was a crowded night and the rest of the patrons who weren't getting arrested were just getting really frustrated at like, 
just yet again, this was another instance of their friends and people they knew being harassed by the cops just for being gender nonconforming to a degree that was considered illegal at the time. So they started throwing things at the police, basically just like whatever they could find. So it was like trash, plastic cutlery, donuts, which I think is kind of cool and funny. Um, and people, <laughs> it's like just, I don't know, like cops are supposed to like donuts. And it's like, yes, throw donuts at them. <laughs> um, but so people started like flooding out onto the street and kind of like packing the area and the police decided to retreat instead of making the arrests that they had planned. Um, so that was a victory. Then the cops called backup and a whole night of rioting against the police ensued. Um, the street had to be closed down for an entire day because of this. Um, so this event was something of a tipping point for queer and trans visibility. Um, from that time to when Stonewall happened, there were several more kind of like organized protests for gay rights, um, one of which was an annual march in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia throughout the second half of the 1960s. Um, there was also a picket in front of the U.S. Army building in New York um, to protest the military's discriminatory policies, which, you know, we don't love the military, but some of the things that the military would do at this time is they would like dishonorably discharge gay people and then send their record to potential employers to be like, this person is gay, don't hire them. So even if you were trying to leave the military, your life could still be completely fucked over by this. Um, and then there were also other protests that ranged kind of from like formal sit-ins to more unplanned pushback against the police. Um, so one event in that category that I specifically want to call attention to is the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which happened in San Francisco in 1966. So Compton's Cafeteria was a 24-hour diner, and it was a popular spot for trans sex workers to meet up in between seeing clients and, like, check in on each other's safety, like, have a spot that they could hang out um, in between other work that they were doing. Um, so one night in August, cops showed up, which again was common because this was a spot that a lot of trans and queer people hung out. Um, but then they started physically grabbing and pushing around a trans woman and she threw her cup of hot coffee in a cop's face, which is amazing and iconic. You love to see it. Yes. Um, and so this also sparked the other patrons to start fighting back and they started like flipping tables. They threw like salt shakers through the windows, ended up breaking a bunch of windows, um, hitting cops with their purses, which again, iconic. Um, oh, eventually many of the people, yeah, it's, it's so great. Um, so many of the people involved were arrested, but they did manage to destroy a cop car on their way out. Yes. Um, so yeah, you love to see it. Um, and I think it's important to note that this was specifically a rebellion by trans women, mostly trans women of color and most of whom were sex workers. Um, so throughout the 1960s, there was all of this formal and informal organizing that was sort of steadily building up trans and queer visibility and solidarity um, and really kind of creating the conditions for the Stonewall Rebellion to be this spark that ended up leading to the formation of all of these more formal gay rights organizations. Amazing. I really am just thinking about how much I want a side by side of a photo of hot coffee being thrown in that cop's face. And I don't know if people remember I think it was a couple years ago when um, Princess Nokia threw hot soup at a man on the subway who was like <laughs> being racist. Oh, yeah. Um, if you don't, if you're not familiar, basically this man on the New York City subway 
um, was like saying derogatory things towards, I think they were black teenagers and Princess Nokia just like threw a hot soup on him. It was amazing. Um, and yeah, I would just love like a picture of both of those, just like side by side, maybe on a t-shirt. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> if you can make it happen, please get in touch with please. us. Please. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, next wanted to talk about the Stonewall riots. Um, you've probably heard of them, but you know, maybe you haven't. So, and, and that's what we're here for. So yeah, prior to the riots, similarly to what Julia was describing with Cooper Donuts, the Stonewall Inn was commonly raided by the police because it was a well-known spot for, um, queer and trans sex workers, um, especially who were people of color and other marginalized folks to hang out. So in 1969, a good year to have started, um, the Stonewall Inn. Nice. nice. <laughs> Very nice. Riots uh, were started fighting against the police brutality that often happened there um, and specifically was spearheaded by two trans women of color who were also sex workers named Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Um, this reminds me that a few years ago when I was on a mega bus, there were these like two dudes sitting a couple rows behind me who had just watched. There's like a Marsha P. Johnson um, film that came out. And I just remember hearing this man a couple rows behind me being like talking about Marsha P. Johnson, just being like, no, like no one knows about this. And I was just like, <laughs> maybe, so anyway. maybe if you're straight, you don't. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, what do you. What are you That's talking so about? Funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Sylvia Rivera, um, who is cited to have thrown the first brick that night, uh, later stated, letting loose fighting back was the only way to get across to straight society and the cops that we weren't going to take their fucking bullshit anymore. The riot turned into several nights of riots across New York City um, against police brutality. And one year after the riots, the first uh, pride parades were held. And by two years after that, there were um, LGBTQ rights groups celebrating pride in pretty much every major US city. Um, however, also important to note that pride became co-opted very quickly by whiteness and liberalism by 1973. So only a few years after the riots, Sylvia Rivera was booed while trying to speak at the New York City Pride. Um, because the crowd was transphobic and racist. Um, not surprised. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Not surprised. Disappointed, but not surprised. Um, but I think, yeah, people, a lot of people think the co-opting kind of happened slowly, but it was pretty much right away. Happened very quickly. Yeah. So not to get too sidetracked with like more of the current discourse around cops at Pride, but just want to hammer home that cops are truly antithetical to what pride has been from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, also worth mentioning that aside from just literal cops being at pride, so many of the corporations and banks um, at pride tend to displace a lot of queer people through gentrification. And also a lot of them literally fund private prisons. So there should be no cops or cop supporters at pride. It's not only like literal cops. Totally. Yeah, yeah and Absolutely. I was just going to jump in to say, before we get into, I think Julie is going to give us like a little history of, of corporate pride, mm -hmm. that people have like always been pushing back against this. Like, just like, um, Zoe was talking about with Sylvia Rivera, like trying to speak, being booed. Um, this move towards a sanitized corporate, like anti or pro police pride has been protested by people like every step of the way. One of my favorite images is from the 19, 
um, 80s where uh, people were putting, I believe it was the 1980s, um, patches on their jeans that said the first gay pride was a riot, like driving home this point that like, remember your roots. This is not a pro-capitalist event. This is an like anti-establishment um at its core you know um so keeping in mind that like there have been there's been resistance to this trends the whole way but um i think it is really important also to talk about like how it came to be that the way that it is where you have like jp morgan presents pride 2021 <sighs> yeah i i also just wanted to say that um the sylvia rivera speech that zoe was talking about is on youtube it's great um if you google just like sylvia rivera y'all better quiet down um it will come up and amazing highly recommend um but yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit about how this happened like how did we go from stonewall which was an anti-police riot to what we see today um especially in New York, I think it's quite jarring because it's literally where the event happened, but even in other cities where there are commemorations of this same event. Um, so the first year after Stonewall had happened on the anniversary, there was an organization called the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee, um, and they organized the first New York Pride March um, to kind of like commemorate what had happened. Um, I think like Kellen was saying, it is important to say that not all of the original participants in the Stonewall riots were in support of this. Um, even that very first March, a lot of people saw as a sanitized version of what had happened that was led mostly by white cis queer people, um, mostly white gay men, instead of the trans women of color who had been such a big part of like actually making this happen. Um, so then organizers from this group continued to run this as kind of like an ad hoc event. There was no like formal nonprofit organization or anything um, until 1984, which is when they founded Heritage of Pride, which is kind of a funny name. Um, and that's the company that still to this day runs like the big corporate pride events in New York. So this you know, again, started out as kind of a grassroots thing, although it definitely didn't include everybody. But this organization, Heritage of Pride, just gradually became less and less transparent with its finances and like where the money was going and what they were doing with it and moved more towards corporate sponsorships and kind of raking in the money that they could get from these big organizations that started to want to be seen as associated with Pride. Um, and this included formally re registering the event and having a growing police presence. Um, so in 2016, after the Pulse nightclub massacre, many cities used that as an excuse to ramp up policing at Pride events. Um, 2016 saw some of the heaviest policing of Pride events that we had seen previously to that point. Um, and just, I mean, I think we say this on the show a lot, but just to really hammer it home, like cops harass and murder trans and queer people far more often than they protect us. So it's a flawed idea that we should add more cops to pride to somehow like protect queer people from violence. Um, and many people saw the need to push back on this after what happened in 2016. So in 2017, 
activists in several major cities. I think DC was the first, and then it happened in New York as well. Basically organized like blockades of the cop contingent in the march um, and like blocked the cops from marching until they were ultimately arrested. Um, and that same year, Toronto formally banned cops from its Pride March. So good job, Canada. Um, then in 2019, the Reclaim Pride Coalition, um, which had formed, I think about a year before, organized a march of 50,000 people to recreate the original Christopher Street Liberation Day March. Um, and they also kind of following in this tradition of people not just being chill with like adding more cops to pride events. Um, they started showing up to the Heritage of Pride meetings and really demanding that they get rid of cops at Pride, get rid of the corporate sponsorships. Um, so in between 2019 and now, a couple of cities have tried to ban cops at Pride, but ended up walking it back after police organizations complained. Um, that includes Minneapolis and Sacramento. Um, and Vancouver has also now banned cops at Pride. So I don't know what's going on in Canada, but they seem to be doing a better job than we are. Um, but this year, Heritage of Pride announced that it won't allow police to march at the New York City Pride Parade, and it will hire private security instead of having the major police presence that's typically seen at Pride. Um, I don't love the private security thing because, honestly, private security is usually just, like, retired or off-duty cops, so right. it's not particularly different, but as kind of like a PR move, I think it shows that they are realizing there's a lot of um, organizing behind this and that, you know, they need to start moving in that direction. And I think it's some amount of progress. It's definitely something that I'm surprised to see happening this quickly, but that is kind of the state of affairs when it comes to cops at Pride today, where we're at. It's not very good. <laughs> Yeah. Hate it. Um, God, it's so depressing. So another big landmark in queer organizing that we wanted to talk about began in 1970 in the year after Stonewall. And I should say that a lot of what I know about this comes from a paper that a student uh, wrote uh, about two years ago for a class I taught about the social history of American public health. Um, I taught this class twice. Like I have students do really cool stuff. I've had People write a lot about queer history for this class um, and uh, learned a lot from them. So shout out to my students. I kind of hope you're not kind of hope you're not listening. But um, <laughs> if you are, hey, what's up? Uh, <laughs> if you are, then you're already cool enough. So don't be a narc. Very true. Just chill. don't be a narc. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. As uh yeah, no cops at Pride, no narcs <laughs> listening to Season of the Bitch. Um <laughs> <laughs> As Laura mentioned um, at the top of the episode, uh, homosexuality was listed in the DSM, again, that big diagnostic manual for mental health practitioners, as a mental illness um, in the mid-20th century. So starting the year after Stonewall again in, in 1970, when the APA, which again is the American Psychiatric Association, held its annual meeting in San Francisco, the gay community started protesting the APA to demand that homosexuality be removed from the DSM. So disqualified as a mental illness um i just wanted to say that like by the way big mistake to upset the gay community and then have your conference in san francisco <laughs> like just a total <laughs> rookie <roasted>. move um <laughs> But yeah, these protests, which continued over the next few years at every APA conference, 
were also accompanied by really cool work that was being done on the inside by psychiatrists, some of whom were gay and some of whom did research on homosexuality and had come to the conclusion that, and I am going to be using technical terms here, being gay is chill. Um, so at the <laughs> 1970, True. yeah, yeah, it's chill. At the 1971 meeting, after the first year where there were these big protests, um, gay activists Barbara Giddings and Frank Kameny, who actually weren't psychiatrists, were able to secure a panel at the APA alongside other psychiatrists who weren't gay but were supportive of gay people. Um, and uh, the the panel was called Gay is Good, and they Creative. talked about- Creative. Yes. <laughs> they talked about the stigma that the, you know, diagnosis with air quotes of homosexuality brought on gay and bi people, um, which like, obviously, uh, I'm making a face here. Obviously, that's an issue. But apparently, this was the first time that a lot of the psychiatrists in the audience had like given it any thought. Um and Giddings and uh, Kameni decided to actually come back for a second year to the 1972 APA and give another panel. Um, but as I think it was uh, Giddings who pointed out, the panel was composed of gay people who weren't psychiatrists and psychiatrists who weren't gay people. Um, mm. And that changed in 1972 uh, because they were joined by an actual gay psychiatrist. Um, but this caused like a huge stir at the APA because it was generally really assumed that like, if you had a mental illness, you wouldn't be capable of practicing psychology or psychiatry, um, which is also amusing to me because like now, like if my <laughs> therapist has never been anxious or depressed, I'm like, do I trust you at right. all? Like if you're a yeah. fucking normie ass person with like a quote unquote working brain, like get out of here. <laughs> um, so how else, like, I don't know how else people get into the profession. Uh, most people in my social work program self-disclose various mental health things like everyone yeah <laughs> not to out them if you're listening maybe it's not you but like a lot of people in my classes are like I have this thing so it's just like why else would you go into it yeah well maybe because you really like um pathologizing people and have an interest in access to drugs I don't know I'm just speculating yeah totally. um but yeah, so so I digress. This psychiatrist who was going to join them on stage was literally so terrified that he might lose his job for publicly coming out. And he had actually previously lost two jobs as a psych psychiatrist for being gay that he wore a disguise for the panel and used the name Dr. H Anonymous instead of his own name. Um, and you can look up pictures of this. If you Google Dr. H Anonymous, you'll see he wore like a rubber Halloween mask and a baggy suit that would hide his body. And he used a microphone that distorted his voice so he wouldn't be recognized. I should also add the mask that he wore was terrifying. Um, oh my God. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. It is horrifying. Mask technology has improved significantly since 1972. <laughs> like, let me just say that. Um, uh, I'm scared to look it up. Masks like freak me out. Yeah, this will get you, Zoe. Okay, um, I'm not looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take your word. Yeah. So John, it, it, so his name is John Fryer. He came out, it, he waited until 1994 to come out, not as gay, but as Dr. H Anonymous. So it took him 20 years to be like, yeah, that was me publicly. Um, he, he was the man behind Dr. Anonymous. And he later said that he, that he knew the disguise had worked because sitting in the front row of his talk was one of his old bosses who had fired him for being quote, gay and flamboyant. And like that guy didn't recognize him. Um, 
So anyway, so Fryer talked about the prejudice that gay psychiatrists face, the ways that gay psychiatrists could actually help queer patients and why it was like important to have people who were gay in in the industry um, and the importance of changing the DSM. And it's like this is all happening again, in addition to these protests that are taking part on the street out of at every APA. Um, and it's, but, but especially Fryer's big move, it's really hard to overstate the importance of what he did and the degree to which it shook people at the APA. And um, I know from, again, this really great paper that one of my students wrote that there was also some like infighting at higher levels where, you know, a younger generation of, of uh, psychiatrists was like kind of, insurgent and like challenging authority and whatever and was like this shouldn't be a diagnosis but we don't need to get into that um trying to like really center especially the acts of queer people here um and after sort of all of this cumulatively happening in 1973 the next year homosexuality was removed from the dsm and that was a major excuse that the medical world had for pathologizing queer people, for treating them poorly, and it was removed. Um, but that's not to say that everything got better or that queer people were treated fairly by the medical profession or public health because dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the AIDS crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, basically. A flawless transition. Thank um, you so much. No, for real. Um, so, so as we've alluded to, we're going to be talking about the AIDS crisis and specifically the history of queer organizing in the AIDS crisis. And quickly, I just wanted to give a note on the difference between HIV and AIDS. So HIV is the virus and AIDS is the condition that people can have due to the virus. Yeah. And AIDS was discovered first because it was what manifested from having gotten HIV. Um, and, uh, they traced it back to HIV after AIDS was discovered. Totally. So while having gay sex stopped being punishable by law before the AIDS crisis really exploded, which as we'll see is like, you know, there's a wonky timeline on this, so we don't really know. But the citizens of the United States writ large and just generally people around the world did the deeply unforgivable thing of turning their back on the queer community when AIDS was absolutely decimating queer populations. Some straights just felt like this confirmed their fears and concerns about homosexuality as a disease. Yeah, yeah. And I think it might be helpful here just to like pause and talk about before we get into organizing, like what the early years of AIDS were like what that climate was like um we know now that hiv which is the virus that causes aids as, as laura said arrived in the united states probably in the early 1970s um but it was extremely rare the cases were not linked to each other um and it wasn't until the 80s that scientists started to notice a pattern um and to identify it and and put these cases together. Um, so the first publication to mention them was the CDC's weekly bulletin in June, the first week of June in 1981, which noted that five gay men in Los Angeles had been diagnosed with a rare form of pneumonia. Um, and after several more similar cases had been observed, some scientists started positing the existence of a sexually transmitted disease, which they called GRID, G-R-I-D, or gay-related immunodeficiency. Um, and they were noticing it in men who otherwise should have been healthy, were frequently young, had no underlying health issues, 
um, who are getting extremely rare forms of illness, like those pneumonia cases or like Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a really, I, I know I keep saying rare, but these are really extremely rare forms of cancer. And so seeing clusters of them, especially in people who are otherwise healthy, was really disturbing and really remarkable. Um, and by August 1982, the CDC had classified the disease as AIDS or autoimmune deficiency syndrome, notably dropping the gay part of the name. Um, and while men who had sex with men were one of the major groups suffering from the virus, it was also affecting another major group, which was um, intravenous drug users. Yeah, I also saw a magazine cover from 1981 that was titled Gay Cancer. Um, just that was the title. I, I'm like, y'all could have done better on just not traumatizing everyone with your titles. Um, also, in the United States, one of the first known people to lose their life to AIDS was a 16-year-old black man in 1968 in St. Louis, Missouri. But as Kellen said, this was only actually discovered in the 1980s when HIV testing became available. Yeah, so I mean, they didn't, um, yeah, they they basically had no way of knowing what caused these really rem sort of isolated incidents, seemingly isolated incidents, until they started to occur in clusters. And one of the ways that clusters were discovered, because if you have like a 16 year old boy, who's, you know, perhaps not super sexually active, or doing intravenous drug usage, or, um, you know, exchanging blood with people in any sort of way, shape or form, that is not necessarily going to spread. But once it gets into, for example, a community where people are having sex with each other, and specifically having um, penetrative anal sex with each other, that's where you can end up having basically clusters. And the same thing is true with communities of people who are sharing needles for whatever reason. And so that's part of the reason that like scientists began to notice this problem um, yeah, beginning another, in the 1980s. Another of the like clusters like Kellen was describing was for um, patients with uh, hemophilia. Mm -hmm. Hemo is that what it's called? Yeah, hemophilia. Yeah. Okay. So, um, which is a blood clotting disease. And so they frequently get transfusions. Um, and these patients, uh, especially ones who were not sexually active or, um, were not gay men, which was all who it was thought to affect at this time. Um, scientists started to be like, oh, that's really weird. They're like the blood supply is infected. So how is that happening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of activism, like, AIDS activism has been around for basically as long as the disease had been identified. So one of the earliest organizations was the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was founded in 1982 in New York City by a group of gay men, including famously Larry Kramer, um, who's an author, a playwright. He passed away last year, actually, um, uh, and was really prolific um, and has written a lot about the AIDS crisis. So you may have read some of the stuff that he wrote. Um, but the Gay Men's Health Crisis was a volunteer support network that helped people with AIDS, did a lot of mutual aid work, even just like going to visit and stay with people in the hospital when their families abandoned them, which was frequently the case. Some Many people were outed by their diagnosis and abandoned by their families. Um, Kramer famously split from the group because he felt like it wasn't doing enough on the political side um, and helped found ACT UP in 1987, which we'll talk about in a second. But there were a lot of other groups that arose to deal with the AIDS crisis, too. Yeah, totally. I just want to circle back really quickly to the blood sharing thing because literally it's still like if you're gay, yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to you like it's written in the thing that you can't donate blood. But like, obviously, like tons of gay people donate blood. You have to be um, celibate for a period of time before giving blood. Yeah. So it's just like 
the homophobia that came out of this crisis is still affecting us mm -hmm. today. Especially because at the time there wasn't yet testing. There's now testing. So yeah. they could right. just test the blood. But right. they do. They literally guess. do test the blood. Yeah, they, <laughs> right. like, they still test the blood. Yeah. 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 Okay, so back to these other movements other than ACT UP. So the movement of people with AIDS um, had its foundational moment at a 1983 conference in Denver, Colorado, with a manifesto later known as the Denver Principles. Described later as the Magna Carta of AIDS activism, the Denver Principles called for a new relationship between people with AIDS, their health care providers, and the society around them. Queer people and predominantly queer people with HIV or AIDS have been at the forefront of the movement against AIDS. We obviously don't stand the peak liberalism of Queer Eye, but when Jonathan Van Ness came out as HIV positive and talked about the medicine he takes for it, that was a very big deal still that happened recently. People will still give gay people separate silverware because they're afraid of catching HIV. Anyways... Um, if you didn't know, the medical advancements in this field have made it so that when HIV medication is taken as prescribed, it can bring a person's viral load to undetectable levels, making it effectively impossible to transmit the disease to sexual partners. And when taken correctly, people who are HIV positive can live long, happy lives just like anyone else. And I think it's hard to underline how traumatic the AIDS crisis has been to the queer community, particularly for Gen X queer people, and the long-lasting social and cultural ramifications that this disease has had on the queer community as a whole. As always, queer-led organizations and movements were the ones to really bring awareness about the progress in this disease. Queer organizations also were the ones to show up for those who were suffering at the time when the world turned them back on them. Like Kellen was saying, like, it was very common for people who were in the queer community or people who had a diagnosis to be there for other people that were, like, further along in their um, AIDS journey. So these numbers are undoubtedly higher, especially because of some of the categorization that happened relating to the crisis, which Zoe will get to in a minute. But the typical number that's tossed around is that over 92,000 individuals died from AIDS in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I also just want to underline what Laura's saying here about like the world turning its back on people with AIDS. Like, as most of our listeners probably know, it was Ronald Reagan who was in the White House when the AIDS epidemic broke out. Um, he had been put into office largely by riding, riding the wave of the evangelical Christian vote. Um, that whole thing is a subject for another episode. I think it actually would be good to do something about the moral majority and and like that totally. whole history basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was an extremely conservative movement, socially conservative movement that put him into office. Um, and you can also hear more about how much Ronald Reagan sucks on our episode, Season the Bitch versus Ronald Reagan, which is just an hour of me and Zoe just like totally shitting on him. And also a little bit on Nancy Reagan because we're feminists. Um, but anyway, exactly. Reagan... Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Reagan for several years just like straight up refused to acknowledge the AIDS crisis um, because it was happening to people that he just didn't give a shit about, which was, again, specifically gay men, trans women, and drug users. Um, in 1982, for the first time, not Reagan, but his press secretary was asked about it at a news briefing. Um, and I just want to like go through this exchange because it's 
it's just shocking and it's cruelty. So Julia, you haven't talked for a while. Would you like to, we're going to maybe do like a line reading. Would you like to be Lester yeah, Kinn solving? Lester is um, a journalist. So Julia is going to be this journalist, Lester. I'm going to be Larry Speaks, who is the absolute piece of human shit, who is Reagan's press secretary. And then um, I know oh, it's going to yeah. be. I love her- this. <laughs> terrible to actually laugh at this but you can do like a forced laugh maybe zoe and laura do you want to do where it says there's like notes in the script um where people in the press pool the people literal journalists are laughing just do like a ha 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 to show when the laughing is happening okay Got all you. right we let's we go can do this yeah evil laughter okay yeah. So does the president have any reaction to the announcement by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? AIDS? I haven't gotten anything on it. Over a third of them have died. It's known as gay plague. Ha ha ha. No, it is. It's a pretty serious thing. One in every three people that get this have died. And I wonder if the president was aware of this. I don't have it. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Do you? You don't have it? Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry. Ha ha ha. <laughs> do you? No, I don't. You didn't answer my question. How do you know? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Does the president, in other words, the White House, look on this as a great joke? No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. Jeez, so, wow, that was brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you have the Reagan administration. Literally, I mean, I think Lester Kinsolving is like a, a pretty brave journalist, actually, for trying to take the Reagan administration to task on this. Obviously, the press pool was incredibly hostile and homophobic. Um, just laughing when when the this press secretary is asking a reporter if he has AIDS. Um and Reagan himself did not even publicly mention AIDS, like not didn't say the term, didn't bring it up once until 1985. And then it was only in response to another reporter's question. Um, and the overall climate was just as harsh. And um, in doing research for this episode, I found an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics from 1988 entitled, Is AIDS a Just Punishment? Meaning, is it a reasonable punishment for homosexuality? And I like Jesus. I should say on the... On the bright side, the author does say no, it is not a just punishment. But the fact that this stuff was getting published in a scholarly ethics journal in the late 1980s Uh, is disgusting. uh, Um, Very relatedly, William Buckley, who's uh, just like a conservative evil mastermind, um, big news anyway dude uh we hate him titan yes (laughs) um william buckley published an op-ed in the new york fucking times in 1986 arguing that everyone who had aids should be tattooed on their forearm and on their butt to alert others to their status it was like a fucking dark time like okay first of all the new york times is canceled and has always been canceled but literally look no further than this fucking thing but also they still do the most fucked up shit of all time yeah yeah and like just as a final example jerry falwell who was an evangelical who helped carry reagan to, to the presidency who founded liberty university he was among one of many evangelical leaders who believed aids was meant to exterminate homosexuals who had sinned against god so like i said it was just a fucking rough time Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think one important thing to note, and Laura alluded to this with talking about the recorded number of deaths, um, is that part of why uh, cis gay men are so emphasized when talking about AIDS and not that they're 
were not obviously so many cis gay men that were infected, but there were a lot of other people too who were not diagnosed as such because the CDC definition um, excluded women for a long time because since it was originally thought of as um, this gay man disease, the definition was really written to that. So women were contracting um, and dying of AIDS, um, but that looked somewhat differently and didn't fit into the CDC diagnosis. So they often um, ended up dying faster because they were unable to access the social security benefits um, and other related care that queer organizers fought really hard for gay men uh, to receive when they were diagnosed with AIDS. Uh, which brings something that I want, that we have been alluding to getting to, talking about ACT UP, which stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which organized around having the CDC change the definition of AIDS. They organized around many things, which I'm going to get to, one of them being this. And this was a very long fight. Um, and it wasn't until 1993 that the definition was changed to be much more extensive and therefore inclusive of the many ways that um, HIV and AIDS can manifest. <clears throat> so I know we're getting close on time. I also want to talk about some of the other notable organizing efforts within ACT UP. Uh, they did so, so much though. So this will um, not at all be extensive, but we'll get to what we can. So one of their major um, demonstrations was in 1987, hundreds of ACT UP members protested on Wall Street for greater access to the experimental drugs that were being tried for AIDS. Several members were arrested on charges for civil dis disobedience. And the following year, they returned to Wall Street on the same day of the following year uh, with, for an even bigger demonstration, which resulted in over 100 arrests. And the year after that, 1989, um, Seven ACT UP members went undercover to get into the New York Stock Exchange and then chained themselves to the balcony to protest the high cost of AZT, which at the time was the only drug approved um, for the treatment of AIDS. And AZT initially cost around $10,000 per year. Um, and this was lowered following um, the demonstrations and organizing of ACT UP to about $6,500 per year, which is still way too high. Uh, so yeah, that was like one of the big things that they worked on. Another was um, against Cosmopolitan magazine. In January of 1988, Cosmo published an article by a psychiatrist, back to those psychiatrists, named Richard Gould, uh, which falsely stated that the risk of contracting HIV through vaginal intercourse was essentially negligible. So um, that women yes. couldn't really get it. Yeah, which is very false. Uh, as for what I just said. So women from ACT UP first met with the, the writer of that to demand that he publicly apologize for spreading dangerously false information. Um, also, just to emphasize, he was a psychiatrist. This was not a medical doctor who worked with patients of this. Um, and he refused. Yeah, he refused to apologize. So they decided that they had to go directly to Cosmo. And this was actually the first time, this was before what I was mentioning with the CDC diagnosis. This was the first time that the women of ACT UP organized separately from the main body um, because this was specifically affecting women and that wasn't really being recognized in a lot of ways. So before the demonstration, they ensured that it would get adequate, adequate news coverage, um, which is what they really wanted. And then they protested in front of the Hearst building. Hearst is a media conglomerate, which Cosmo is under, which side note, I once applied to a job at one of their publications and they told me that my salary request, which was very low, was too high. Huh. So just, 
Just putting that out there. Absolutely Yikes. ridiculous. Yeah. But um, anyway, so they did this protest, had major media coverage, and that um, spread this controversial article. And uh, their goal was kind of to get this information out there that there was controversy about it. And Cosmo did eventually publish a partial retraction of the original article. And then the next thing um, that I want to talk about is with the FDA. So this was one of the largest actions that ACT UP did on October 11th of 1988. They successfully shut down the FDA for a full working day. This was um, the largest demonstration in the U.S. since some of the anti-war protests of the Vietnam War. So this was huge. The members of ACT UP blocked the doors, walkways, and roads leading to the FDA building. And during this action, um, the police started conducting mass arrests of hundreds of people, basically just putting people in buses and arresting them. Um, but the primary demands of this were for the FDA to make medications for AIDS available more quickly and um, fairly, which did slowly happen thanks to both this action and many following actions. One of the um, sort of major visuals that people may recognize from this sort of protest was um, a jacket that was famously worn by active activists and artists David Wonorowitz. Um, and it says it's a jean jacket. It has the famous act up pink triangle on it and says, if I die, forget burial, just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. And I think it really underlines the degree to which many people, and, and I should say that um, he did end up passing away from AIDS in 1992. Yeah. Um, many people held rightly the federal government and its inaction um, on the issue responsible for the huge number of deaths um, from the disease. Yeah. Um, and then one more thing I wanted to talk about, um, as Kellen mentioned, uh, AIDS was discovered before they knew the virus that led to it. And so there was kind of this race of scientists to figure out, um, what the virus was. And it was presumed that the scientists that first discovered the virus would win the Nobel peace prize because this was such a big global event. So in the early 80s, there were two different scientific teams, one in the U.S. led by Robert Gallo, and the other was in France led by Luc Montagnier. Sure, that's my French. That's my five years of public school French. (laughs) Um, And allegedly, they discovered the virus around the same time, um, the virus known as HIV-1. This became highly controversial since one of the teams on the U.S.-based team claimed to have discovered it while the other appropriated their samples. Um, My understanding, and I don't know a ton about scientific studies, is that they kind of uh, traded samples because they knew they were working on the same thing and were seeing if they had the same thing or not. But that actually ended up in one of the teams copying the other one. Um, But... Yeah, my scientific knowledge is not that high. So that's what I think happened. Um, (laughs) Although years later, Gallo admitted that he had been the one that actually appropriated the results from the French strain. So this became a long controversy that largely halted further research and treatment because, because they were essentially fighting for the Nobel Peace Prize. So neither side wanted to admit that they weren't the one that discovered it or share the, um, share the glory, we'll say. And it took until 1994 for the two parties to come to an agreement and um, they published a a joint statement um, about what had happened. But in 1990, ACT UP decided to um, do an action called Storm the NIH, which was in protest of the very slow 
progress and research treatments, which were not fully, but in part due to uh, the virus situation. It's hard to treat a virus if you don't know what it is, but slash they did know what it was, but they weren't releasing the information. Um, so this was also one of their biggest actions, but it received very little news coverage because there happened to be a large fire in DC on the same day. So they were specifically protesting the national planned by the Straits. Honestly, like I'm a little on a conspiracy theory, but I didn't want to get into it. I mean, I'm already there. <laughs> okay. Love that for us. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so they were specifically protesting the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which was directed by, you might have heard of him, Anthony Fauci. He sucks. We hate Sorry. him. Boom. People, he'd become like such a hero, but he fucked up a lot of stuff with AIDS. A lot of stuff, which I think... Um, like COVID gives a really clear example of how quickly research and treatment can be accelerated when the people in power choose to do so. Anthony Fauci. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to close us out um, with just kind of a postscript about what um, some other queer organizing that's not directly linked to HIV and AIDS has looked like following Stonewall. Um, so in the decades after Stonewall, Queer people and to a lesser extent trans people did get more visible, but that also came with increased homophobia and transphobia by people who wanted everyone to stay closeted and to maintain the status quo. Um, so there were tons of hate crimes against queer people and police violence continued, as well as police not responding when trans and queer people tried to report the violence they experienced. So one response to this um, was the Lavender Panthers, who were an oh, armed... Yeah. Yeah, which is a great name. Um, so they were an armed gay self-defense group in San Francisco in the early 1970s. They were pretty small and short-lived, which I think is why a lot of people hadn't heard of them. Um, but I think they really represent the diversity of tactics that queer people have always used to protect ourselves and advocate for our rights. So it was founded by this guy, the Reverend Raymond Brochiers. He was a gay man who ran a community center for LGBTQ youth in the Mission District. And he modeled the group on the Black Panthers after seeing the success of their model of community policing against the police, essentially protecting their own communities from police violence. Um, so basically the plan was that they would patrol the streets with weapons and try to stop would-be attackers from beating up gay people. Uh, they were reportedly pretty successful, but unfortunately they weren't really supported by sort of the more affluent gay community in San Francisco who didn't have to worry as much about basic survival. And they didn't really like that this group was kind of stirring up trouble um, and not, you know, being very, I don't know, not following respectability politics, essentially. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to close this out with just a short excerpt from an article that was written about this group at the time in 1973. Um, it was in Time magazine, and it's just a really great article. It's seemingly written by a straight reporter, so some of the language is like a little weird, but I think the message it communicates is really wonderful. Um, so here we go. Four San Francisco teenagers recently got the surprise of their young lives. Tooling around in their souped up car looking for a little fun, they spotted two homosexuals leaving the Naked Grape, a well-known gay bar. The youths roared to a stop, jumped out of their car, and began to push the homosexuals around. Suddenly, a brawny band, led by a man in a clerical collar, 
leaped from a gray Volkswagen bus and lit into them. We didn't even ask questions, said the Reverend Ray Brochures, 38. We just took out our pool cues and started flailing ass. The teenagers fled into the night only to return 10 minutes later, begging for their car. Look, man, we don't want no trouble. The group they most assuredly did not want trouble with was the Lavender Panthers, a stiff-wristed team of gay vigilantes who have taken to the streets of San Francisco to protect their Confederates against just such attacks. Formed by the Reverend Ray, a Pentecostal evangelist and known homosexual, who himself was once beaten severely outside his gay mission center, the Panthers patrol the streets nightly with chains, billy clubs, whistles, and cans of red red spray paint. Um, I love them. Yeah, they. Um, okay, and then one more thing from the end of yes, this article. Please, please. Um, so many of the city's affluent gays do not like the idea of hard-eyed homosexual toughs causing commotion in the streets, but Ray insists that his draconian measures are necessary. Middle America has always had a little tinge of homophobia, he says, but I've had it up to here. All this queer bashing has simply got to stop. Ugh. So, yeah, that's yeah, we're making the a Reverend channel. Ray. We're making a channel in the <laughs> Discord called Lavender Panthers, and it's going to be about our ways of trying to protect each other from fucking bullshit. Yeah, I love it. That's so... Ugh. Okay, the writing was weird, admittedly, but... Yeah, it was... I just... I think it's kind of funny how they're like, oh, this guy's a known homosexual. It's like, really? He started an anti-gay bashing group? Like, it seems (laughs) likely that he would be gay, but... um, Yeah, you know, as we've discussed, journalism was very weird at the time, but it's cool that they got covered, you know? It's pretty weird now. I mean, yeah, you're you're so right. Not when we do it, but... (laughs) Yes, exactly. Which is why there needs to be more independent journalism. And if you want to help us continue doing so, you can give us money on our Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Thank you, Laura. I had to. I had to. You can go to our website, seasonofthebee.com. You can email us if you want, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. In honor of Pride Month, please submit your applications to date a co-host. I'm really waiting for the email to blow up. I can't believe it hasn't happened. Honestly. Yeah. If if you miss the directions, um, some posts are accepting applications. (laughs) You can send submit a resume, cover letter, um, credit card information to (laughs) seasonofthebee at (laughs) gmail.com. Uh, yeah, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, five stars only. Anything else is homophobic That's right. um, and misogynist. We can't explain further. It, it simply just is. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. That it it, is. There literally was a man who like gave us one star and was like, I don't like hearing that many quote unquote women talking. <laughs> Okay, well, fuck you. Okay, well, I feel like that's five stars for us, though. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. That, that sounds like mean, a him problem. No, I just mean it literally is misogyny. Yeah. True. That's all. Yes. Yeah, it literally is. And we don't want your support, quite frankly. But just don't make it public because don't ruin our listening shit. Come on. Come on. Keep it to yourself. Just don't listen. I don't care. Listen to something else. Whatever. <laughs> But if you are still listening, we love you so much. And I love all of you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.
season of the bitch.